The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on the drums. Welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Judith Butler. We talked about her new book, The Force of Nonviolence. We chatted about how the notion of self-defence raises the question of what exactly we mean by the individual sovereign subject. We also discussed the legitimacy or otherwise of revolutionary violence and why advocacy of nonviolence must be combined with the struggle against inequality. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. And by becoming a $5 supporter, you'll also get access to regular mini episodes on current affairs as well. Finally, new $8 patrons will also receive a free copy of Bhaskar Sankara's The Socialist Manifesto. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have a great many titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Why You Should Be a Trade Unionist by Len McCluskey. In the book, Len McCluskey, the General Secretary of Unite the Union, explains how being a trade unionist means putting equality at work and in society front and centre, fighting for an end to discrimination and to inequality in wages and power. Drawing on anecdotes from his own long involvement in unions, he looks at the history of trade unions, what they do and how they give a voice to working people as democratic organisations. Visit versobooks.com for more information. Judith Butler is Maxine Elliott Professor in the Departments of Rhetoric and Comparative Literature at the University of California, Berkeley. She's the author of many books, including Frames of War, Precarious Life, The Psychic Life of Power, Bodies That Matter, and Gender Trouble. Her most recent book, which was the topic of our conversation, is The Force of Nonviolence. So I imagine that a lot of people, when picking up the cover of a book called The Force of Nonviolence, with a picture of demonstrators on the front, published by a well-known left-wing publisher, they might imagine that they would find themselves reading perhaps a, a fairly practical book on on the strategy and tactics of nonviolence. And although obviously the book does talk about some well-known practitioners of, of nonviolence, it, it's clear the book is doing something quite different. Could you explain what you were what you were aiming to do, or what your primary aim was in, in writing the book? Well, I think that I am trying to offer something like a philosophy of nonviolence. And by that, I mean not so much a set of prescriptions or even absolute principles, but an ethos. I think my my aim in this book is to think about nonviolence as a way of life, a shared or common way of life, and to propose nonviolence as a social philosophy and also as an ethic. Although I am interested in tactics and strategies, very interested, and I 
I do remark upon them throughout the book. I think there are ways of thinking about nonviolence that compel us to rethink who we are as social creatures in the world, what our relationships are to one another, and what our relationship to the earth is, and all that sustains and supports us. So it's not a book that is full of prescriptions or absolute principles, but it does seek to develop an an ethos, a political ethos that also is informed by ethical commitments. So you take up the notion of of self-defense in order to question what it is exactly we mean by the self and the notion of the individual. And and that leads you to discussing the state of nature, the, you know, this concept of, of a pre-state, pre-history, where humanity is conceived as a mass of warring individuals, at least in the way the idea was put forward by by Thomas Hobbes. But but you point out that the idea of the individual in the state of nature depends upon disavowing and, and obscuring the way any supposed individual exists in a, in, a, in a web of dependency. Could you talk more specifically about what the idea of the individual hides and how that's relevant to the, the question of nonviolence? Yes, well, there are sort of two issues here relating to the individual self who can legitimately claim self-defense as a legal rationale for committing violence, for instance. And in the first instance, I'm indebted to the the French philosopher Elsa Dorlin, whose book on self-defense will be appearing with Verso next year. And she points out that historically speaking, if you read the history of classical liberal political thought, you will see that only certain kinds of selves can invoke self-defense because they have a self to be defended and they're, they're considered to have a self that is worthwhile or that is in fact socially recognizable as a, a self worth defending. And other other selves are not really regarded as selves. They're they're called groups or populations or or something else, but they are they're not individuated according to certain norms of individuality. There's a second point, of course, which is one that feminist philosophers and political theorists have been arguing for some time, which is not particularly new, which is that the self-interested individual that we find at the heart of a great deal, although not all, classical liberal political thought is presumably masculine and autonomous in, in a way that doesn't admit to the fundamental relations of dependency that constitute every individual. So I think that dependency is important to to point out for any number of reasons. The, the reason that's perhaps most important for for this book is that that dependency foregrounds social bonds that we have. Sometimes we acknowledge them and sometimes we don't, but we are fundamentally interdependent upon one another. And it's interesting that Martin Luther King Jr did also base his philosophy and practice of nonviolence on a concept of interdependency. One of the things you specifically mentioned that, that is hidden in this idea of, of the, the sovereign individual in, this, in the state of nature is the fact that not only is the individual conceived of as, as uh, male, heterosexual, but also an adult. C- could you talk about the importance of that? Well, I think that's, <laughs> that's terribly important. And of course, one can look at that psychoanalytically, but one could also think back to the early Marx who foregrounds the entire problem of subsistence, right? Like, how is it that any of us do achieve some measure of individuation, as the psychologists would say? How do we, indi- how do we become individuals? No one is 
no one is born an individual <laughs> to, you know, to rephrase Beauvoir, one becomes one to some degree. I'm, I'm ne never sure anyone truly becomes an individual in the sense that they are demarcated off from other people. I think that we, we depend on others for our material subsistence, our ability to be sustained in life. And that's true about food. It's true about shelter. It's, it's true about all the basic requirements of human life. They, they, they depend on social relations and institutions and infrastructures that make our lives possible. So we could disavow them and imagine that as individuals, we are somehow fully self-sufficient or we make our own way or we're fully responsible for the material conditions of our lives. But I think that's a fantasy, and it's in fact a dangerous fantasy because it disavows all the social relations on which we depend and which form some substantial part of who we are. So, you know, there is a claim that I'm making, which is that only through imagining ourselves as social and relational can we come to understand the importance of nonviolence as a practice. It's not just a question of what I, this individual, might do to someone else who gets in my way. It's a question of how I conceive of this self as already bound to others. And what is it I destroy when I do violent harm to another? Well, I destroy the social bond that links us and that could be disavowed. It can be structured along hierarchical and exploitative means. I, I don't mean to say that it's always beautiful. It's not. But I think we should be struggling for radically egalitarian social relations. And my sense is that nonviolence is part of that struggle and that we don't actually understand equality well if we don't understand its relation to interdependency, to the way that violence is unequally distributed across populations. That process of individuation, would you see that as, in some sense, inevitable, that although we experience a certain kind of individuation in the current context of capitalist social social relations at this particular point in time, but there will always be individuation and, and, and we can't, you know, sort of imagine a situation where we don't go through that process. And so the threat of violence is always there because there's always a basis for it because of this this fantasy that we are sovereign individuals. I think I agree with your, your rendition. I would say that there are different notions of individuation depending on who we're talking about and where we are, right? So it, a lot depends on gender and race and historical context. And there are certain cultural zones where individuation is highly prized, especially when it is functioning in the service of a capitalist ethic or neoliberal notions of self-maximization or entrepreneurial selfhood. But look, I mean, it could very well be that those same notions of individuation don't take hold in black and brown communities, at least in the United States, in the exact same way that they would in white communities. And they don't always take hold in the same way for women as for men or so, you know, it, also, it depends on how much you conceive of your, your very self as bound up with the relations that sustain you or the relations that define you in some way. And that varies depending on historical and cultural context. I would say that where this notion of individual sovereignty reigns, right, which is a kind of fantasy, it is based on a disavowal of fundamental dependency, not just a disavowal of childhood, but of a continuing dependency that none of us fully overcome. 
So I think part of the violent, destructive potential in all relations has to do, at least in part, with needing to individuate and not wanting to individuate. And violence can come from both of those tendencies if left to expand into their extreme versions. You mentioned in the book Lacan's notion of the mirror stage and this idea that we all go through this process early on in our lives where, as, as he suggests, um, although it's not a you know, a concrete situation that we're all in, but he, he talks about a, a, an infant in front of the mirror who sees a very sort of integrated, sovereign individual capable of doing things and, and conceives of itself as, as, as being identical with that image in the mirror rather than the much more complicated and, and, and as you're arguing, much more sort of dependent entity because of that, because there's that kind of non-alignment between what we often perceive as our individual character and the much more porous nature and, and, and complicated nature of, 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 uh, of ourselves, do you think there's always a kind of degree of anger within that process that we sort of, we, we want to be more individual than we actually are? Well, sometimes. I mean, look, you know, I'm not, I'm not a Lacanian. I'm, I'm probably m- more of a Freudian. <laughs> And I, I follow, you know, perhaps most closely a kind of relational psychoanalytic point of view that has emerged from Freudian thought and maybe the present version of object relations to, to some degree. But I'm also interested in the death drive, which brings me a little closer to the Kleinians. The reason to reference Lacan there, though, is precisely because the, the young child, which is presumed to be a boy and marked as such in the French, is jubilant at the reflection in the mirror precisely because he imagines that he is all-powerful, that he's standing on his own, right, and that there he is reflected back to himself as standing on his own, and yet he is, from the back, supported. And Lacan refers to that support as a as a trotte bébé, which means a kind of support for the, for the baby, something that is, you know, a stand, a platform, but in fact, it's a mother who's, <laughs> or a caretaker, who's holding him, right? So the fact of that basic dependency in order to stand on one's own is disavowed and renamed in the course of Lacan's otherwise quite incisive description, right? But even he, by not allowing whoever is helping to be named as such, he's also participating in this elision of, of a fundamental dependency. I think that's important to point out because when we start social or ethical analysis with individualism, with methodological individualism, we start, okay, I'm an individual, I have to contemplate, do I do violence, do I do not give me a hypothetical, and let's see how my principles stand up in, in the face of a particular hypothetical challenge. I have started with this I who is imagining a situation, but how did this I come into being? We act as if that question is not germane to the question of whether or not to act violently. But I think it is, and because I think we never truly overcome dependency. We live in the world as adults in social interdependency, and we either have uh, political ways of organizing that interdependency that move in the direction of equality, or we have that move in the direction of inequality, even radical inequality. And, and that's where um, it seems to me we... We're, we're faced with a different kind of question, a different kind of problem, and a different framework for thinking about nonviolence. And I suppose it's worth adding here simply that if you are contemplating doing violence but you do not recognize the other person as a human person or as a human life or as a 
life that has value, then you may not recognize your own act of violence as violence at all. In other words, when we're talking about the bombing or the targeting of populations who are considered less than human or who are considered ungrievable, that is to say, their lives are not considered to be valuable human lives, they would not be grieved if they were lost, then, you know, is that act of violence violence or were those people always in some sense gone or not existing or not part of the living such that whatever is done to them is a kind of redundancy. They don't actually suffer because they're not conceived as sentient and suffering creatures. Or if they are conceived in that way, they're conceived as a threat. Or they're conceived as a threat, which is also to transform them into vessels of violence or, you know, as symbolic instantiations of violence that have to be extinguished in order to extinguish violence. But of course, that commits a rather transparent but very popular form of externalizing one's own aggression, right? I must, I must kill those who, who are the true killers. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny how hard it is to find any form of violence that isn't justified in terms of self-defense at some, at some level. Well, I think we need to think critically about self-defense if we're defending a nation as white or we're defending a, a nation against racial or ethnic heterogeneity, is that self-defense? Many people who are right-wing racists would say yes. You've already mentioned that you don't see nonviolence as some kind of absolute principle ap applicable in all situations. So maybe it's not possible to draw a line, but, but if, if you were to draw a line between legitimate self-defense, which I don't know whether you would necessarily conceive of it as violence, but, but where would you draw that line between violence and, and self-defense, or, or rather where self-defense is legitimate? Well, my effort in this book is to try to shift the debate on nonviolence from an exclusively moral framework, right, to a social and political one that is informed by ethics. So, the question, like, what would you do as an individual in this situation, returns me to the moral one. It, it returns me to the moral framework. And of course, sometimes we function precisely in that way. What do I do? And my, my answer is twofold. I mean, on the one hand, I would say there are enormously forceful and aggressive forms of nonviolence that can be used to oppose state violence, that can be used to oppose police violence, that can be used to thwart or undermine the capacities of violent institutions or violent individuals. And I am in favor of that. I don't understand nonviolence as passive. I don't, under, I don't even understand it as peaceable. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe it emerges from some, some internal place of equanimity. It can be Nonviolence can be raging. And in fact, it, it might be defined as a way of cultivating or redirecting rage in such a way that it does not reproduce the violence it opposes. So the question I would ask in any given instance is, is my action reproducing the violence that it opposes? And if it reproduces the violence it opposes, it's adding more of that violence to the world, and that can't be a good solution. It's actually a, a contradictory solution. 
And just to take a concrete case, because I think, and I felt this myself reading the book, you, you talk about the circulation of, of violence, and, and obviously that evokes liberal tropes around cycles of violence, which you know we particularly see with regard to the Israel-Palestine conflict, for, for, for example. But if we take a particularly extreme extreme case, presumably if we think about, say, the, the Warsaw Ghetto uprising, you wouldn't see the, the violence of the fighters in the Warsaw Ghetto attempting to assault and attack and kill German forces, presumably you wouldn't include that as, as a category of, of, of violence that reproduces violence. I would not include it, but let's think about that because, you know, there were people involved in various aspects of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. And let's also remember that uprising involved networks, involved communications, it involved the suturing together of communities, both inside and outside the ghetto. There was a lot going on there besides the uh, smuggling in of rifles, the making of rifles, and the and the violent uprising. So I would say that that when we talk about uprising, it is not necessarily violent uprising. There can be violent dimensions of uprising, but not all uprising is violent. And this strikes me as extremely important. There are not nonviolent dimensions of the Warsaw uprising as well, as is well documented at least in the materials that I saw in Poland when I visited there a few years ago. So I suppose it, it also obscures the, 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 the fact that care work, for example, would be involved in, in, an, in an uprising. Well, that's also true. I mean, that's true in every uprising. There's always the reproduction of labor, like how to keep people, how to alive. Keep people yeah. rising up over time, right? Um, people have to move in and out. But look, on the one hand, dismantling a violent regime like a Nazi regime certainly takes enormous force and even violence to do that. I understand that. But there is a question, and it emerged, of course, for people in the immediate aftermath of that uprising and indeed in the immediate aftermath of World War II, is the lesson of the Warsaw Uprising that we must now live with a very strong military for the Jewish people or for all of the people who were there, communists, dissenters, homosexuals. I mean, in other words, does does the Warsaw Uprising now make a case for a militarized state like the state of Israel? Does it make the case for the Jewish army? Like, how far do we take that? And what does it mean to be engaged in a, in a violent dismantling of a structure of violence like not the Nazi regime, but also then not to take violence as a way of life and to develop a notion of national self-defense, which involves intensified militarization and the rest. So we need to we need to stop at that moment and and think a little bit more about what that uprising tells us about what's what's justifiable in the long run and what is not. I'm not a purist, you know. I mean, I, I'm really not, but I I am concerned that when we agree to violent tactics and strategies as a means to achieve a certain kind of end, and we imagine that the violence will fall away once we've achieved that end, we forget that we have produced a defense for violence that can then be used in other contexts, and that we have also unleashed more violence into the world. So, I would say that a, a violent uprising against a fascist regime also needs to have a plan for reparation and for the restoration of nonviolence as a mode of life. And if it doesn't have that, we, we can see what the terrible consequences are. 
somewhere in the book you have this great phrase where talking about the other ring of populations who are, who are marked down for being legitimate targets of violence and and you say that you know even perhaps people people on the left who would justify certain forms of revolutionary violence say or insurrectionary violence that sometimes they may be uh, and correct me if I'm if I'm misquoting you but uh, communitarians without knowing it and I suppose what I what I found myself thinking about that was that that seems very much the case if we're talking about a, a particular nation or a particular ethnic group. But it made me wonder about the question of of class and, say, subjecting part of the state apparatus of the, of the bourgeoisie to violence. Because in that case, I think proponents of revolutionary violence would say, although we will use violence to achieve a specific end, we're not marking down the bourgeoisie for, for destruction as, as individuals as, or, or, or as, as living people, but rather as, as, as a class. And what we ask of them is to cease their continued participation in, the, in their repressive role, which is obviously quite, quite different to the idea of, of marking down entire populations for, for, for destruction. Well, I think there are two different issues here. I mean, you know, it reminds me of Camus' play, The Just. I think that's how it's translated. And, you know, there the argument is made is, look, we're going to kill somebody, but not as a living individual, but rather as a representative of a class. (laughs) And and then, I mean, you know, it was an act of murder, but it was, you know, it was, it was, there was all this political rationality layered on top of that brute fact and yeah not not going to make the victim feel particularly uh, better about no, it. Uh, no nor does it make the executioner feel better when living with the aftermath of the act and and so i i, I don't believe any person is fully exhausted by their class position or that we can we can we can target individuals as representatives of a, a class and nothing else i think that that's a totalizing form of categorization and that it served certain purposes i know for sure in the in the debates on violent resistance and those debates are of course really important to revisit camus Merleau-Ponty, sartre etc fanon you know that's that's at the core of of their of their disagreements and the, on the on the algerian war. yeah but i think the argument about communitarianism enters a little bit differently. I think that that comes up when, let's say we belong to a community and we practice the same religion or we speak the same language or we have some sense of dominant racial belonging and we want to preserve that over and against those who are perceived as threatening who we are. Like that's a narrow communitarian notion of a social bond. Right. And I'm against that. I mean, which is why part of the argument of this book is to say that a substantial and coherent approach to nonviolence requires a theory and commitment to a theory of and commitment to radical social equality. That would be precisely not to be constrained by communitarian identifications of that kind, whether they're nation, race, religion, ethnicity, or whatever. And would you see calls to nonviolence that aren't coupled with that call to radical equality as as effectively uh, justifications for the for the status quo and and calling on subaltern populations to a, to a kind of quietism? I think it is a kind of quietism, but it also allows certain kinds of assumptions to stay in place, some of which we've spoken about, who has a self that is considered worthy to be defended and whose lives are not considered to be 
grievable, whose lives could be lost with no loss having taken place or perceived that way. So what the U.S. military assault on Iraq did many years ago was precisely to leave that country with enormously toxic soil. And that then made the livability of that environment impossible for a number of living creatures, humans and others. Do we think of that as an ongoing act of violence, the, the toxicity of the soil? I think we do. And we're not able to understand that unless we see that we do, the U.S., you know, afflict on others what it would never tolerate if others were to inflict the same on us. And that's because, precisely because of an imperialist and cultural supremacy, a presumption of supremacy that is being enacted through that kind of warfare and its aftermath. Similarly, the failure to provide support for those who are seeking to cross the Mediterranean to leave violent or economically destitute situations is itself a form of violence. And it, it can take place, and it can, it can take place without being called violent, precisely because the lives that are dumped into that sea or forced to return are not considered to be grievable lives. And those policies are formulated with a presumption of radical social inequality. So we can't even name violence properly. And we can't name nonviolence properly unless we understand where and how those terms are used and abused in the service of furthering social inequality of various kinds. On that notion of, of grievability, you talk about how people are, are interpolated as uh, grievable people and, and, and non-grievable people, which is quite a, a sort of devastating thought, really, I suppose. You know, if one, you know, I'm a white male, presumably I've been interpolated as someone who is worth grieving at some, at some level. And yes, ju you know, just to think that there are populations who are not interpolated in that way. And we can obviously think of something like Black Lives Matter as a movement which seeks to assert the grievability of a, of a population, which is which is denied. Yes, I think it is It is denied by certain powers. It's denied in certain media. It's, des it's denied in certain parts of society, generally the most powerful ones. But in black and brown communities in the U.S., people are grieving those lives and they're treating each other as lives worth living. So, you know, it's not a totalizing picture. You know, Black Lives Matter raises the question of, well, what, whose life counts as a life? And when we say that somebody's life counts as a life, we're saying it matters, it appears as, as a life, it is treasured and valued as a life, and it is mourned as a life, and it is kept from harm, it's kept from death, precisely because we all wish that life to persist and flourish. But who lives with that presumption? And I think fewer and fewer people, I think racial distinctions are huge here, but it's not just race, it's also about a, a number of people across racial divisions that are increasingly precarious and destitute. So you can be a, a very poor white man and feel like your life is radically ungrievable and that no one is looking out for that life and that no one cares whether you live or die and that the policies that are being adopted at the highest level and are being accepted by the popular media are ones that leave you in a state of destitution with no real sense of futurity and, 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 and people with debts also, I mean, are living with a, with a sense of time, which, is, which should not be the time of a human life. It should, it should not be this sense of no future or 
a future that is bound or yoked to a bank or to a federal authority that's going to exact impossible payments for you for the rest of life until death. I mean, you know, those are all forms, I think, of treating lives as ungrievable, which is simply to say, not equally valuable, not, not, not mattering on equal terms. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.